refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, good morning. As, as Scott mentioned, my name is Jimmy, and uh, I'm so glad to be here. Honored to, to be with you and, and to, to preach God's word or from God's word. And, um, and, you know, as I was thinking about today, you know, the opportunities that I get to be around people who normally don't know who I am are very slim and rare. And so I, I realized that a lot of things I may share about myself, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'll do my best to, um, to contextualize you to my life. And so one of the things that Scott said earlier was that I'm the child of Korean immigrants. My parents immigrated from South Korea in 1970. Uh, to the D.C. area, and this is a true story. Uh, when they flew here, they flew into Dulles International Airport. If you've ever flown into D.C., there are three airports that kind of uh, service that city. When my father came, the scope was to, or it was the goal was for him to scope out the city so that the rest of my mom's family could come from Seoul to the States. And so when they had decided, all right, this is it, we're going to live in D.C., um, Let's book the plane tickets, and let's get you guys over from Korea to the States. And sure enough, they booked those tickets, and you know what airport they ended up at. Not Dulles, but Dallas. Uh, so that's one of those things that um, I guess, you know, when you were traveling, uh, immigrating to the States uh, early on, oh, for me early on, the 70s, um, was um, a challenging thing. Um, I grew up, like I said, um, in the D.C. area. My parents owned small restaurants and a dry cleaner's. Uh, I jokingly say we did two of the main three things that Korean immigrants do when they come to the States. We had, had a carryout. We had a dry cleaners. The only thing that we didn't have was a liquor store or a package store. <laughs> uh, but, but my parents were uh, enterprising entrepreneurs, and um, I always remember the conversation at home being around money. Uh, when you are stressed about money, you often talk about money or rather how much you don't have. And so... Um, going to the mall was a very rare occasion. But I do remember a handful of times my mom would take me to the mall uh, to buy something. 
And I was a wallflower of a child. I did not like crowds. I was terrified by crowds. I was um, terrified by open spaces. Uh, Even to this day, the thought of being on a boat in the middle of the ocean is a terrifying thought. Um, And so when I was in this space with my mom, I would grab onto her hand so tightly. And when we'd enter into the department store, I would let go. Not because my mom stopped being my protector and my defender, but rather I saw a better refuge. And in the department store, that refuge was the clothing rack that was in a circle, and I would dart in between the clothes, and I would hide there. And it happened enough times where my mom would say, okay, that's fine. He's safe. He's in one place. He's not roaming around. I'll just let him stay there. I'll get the item that I need. I'll check out, and then I'll come knock on the little rack, and out came chunky little Jimmy. I share you that story not because it's a practice or an art in self-deprecation, but because I saw a better refuge. I thought I had found a source of protection. I thought I had found my fortress in letting go of my mom's hand. When we read Psalm 46, that is effectively what we are experiencing along with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're saying we need a defender, we need a protector, we need a champion. And I think we see three times here in this text who God is in the midst of the chaos that we are in. And ultimately that our hope and that our peace, our shalom, if you will, must be found in God alone and in no one else. So the first observation here is that God is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation. That God is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation. Verses 1 through 3, I'll reread those. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is something that we need to note about this particular psalm. And without diving into the intricacies of the psalms or the psalter, or even who the sons of Korah are, the authors of this particular psalm, what is evident is that the city of Jerusalem was under attack. Why would they say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble? Some theologians would say that this was a very real and dire situation for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, yet the psalmists look beyond that. They look at God, the comforter. Notice in verse 1, God is our refuge He's our defensive fortress that we run to, where we find rest. But he's also our strength, a source of offensive charging against the the threat that is very present at hand outside the city walls. A very present help in trouble, not one that has to be conjured up, encanted upon, and then he comes, but rather he is there in the midst of the city, in the midst of his people. Verse 2 Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Nature is a a powerful reminder of of creative beings and forces. And for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that is God, who is in control of those things, but God himself. And so even in that verse, we can see creation language. It harkens all the way back to Genesis 1, where they're saying there was chaos in the, in the created order or the created thing, and then God comes in and establishes order. How does he do that? Because he is God, who is a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we don't fear. We don't fear. There's a, a place um, in Oregon called Thor's Well. I don't know if you've ever been there. We had the opportunity as a family to travel there uh, several summers ago now. I, all the timing gets mixed up because 2020 was like a weird year, right? Uh, I think it was in 2019, the summer of 2019. And I think we have a picture uh, of Thor's Well. And that looks like it might be like, you know, miles from whatever highway, Pacific Coast Highway. It's like right there. It's kind of terrifying how close it is to the highway. And you can actually hike to the edge. There's no rail around Thor's Well. And really what it is is the water rushes in and it just jumps back out because there's nowhere else for this water to go. Now, when you go, you try to time it where you go during low tide, not high tide, as you can tell. Like, that would be very treacherous, right? But when you look at this, it is deafening how loud the ocean is. And it is extremely terrifying to be so close to such tumultuous water. And I would imagine for the, psal- the psalmist, as they are writing this, as they are thinking about the, the heart of the scene, the mountains being thrown into it, how much they would have realized. How terrifying such a thing would be to see the mountains cast off and thrown into an already tumultuous ocean. But the psalmist says, therefore, we do not fear. We do not fear, though the earth gives way. God is our comforter. Though there be chaos in creation, let's not forget that. As we try to apply these psalms into our lives, uh, A theologian, Graham Goldsworthy, writes this in preaching the whole Bible as Christian scripture. He says, we should not be seduced into thinking that the Psalms can speak from and of themselves to us. If they speak to us of God, they must speak to us of the God who has finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And so we must constantly ask ourselves as we read the Psalms, as we walk through the Psalms, that we ask, how do these words testify to who Christ is? Similarly, one of my seminary professors, Mark Vitato, writes this, and joy comes in the morning. When reading a psalm, it's helpful to read that psalm as speaking about Christ and read it as being spoken by Christ. So with each of these three points, we're going to practice this. So how is it that Psalm 46 sings to us of Christ as our comforter? That Christ is over creation. The, the tumultuous waters of the ocean and the craggly rocks and the, the, the dangerous pathways up and down these places, we have nothing to fear because of the Creator Himself. He goes with us. He goes ahead of us and is behind us. He sus- sustains us. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says this about Christ in creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is Paul's way of saying, yes, all of that Christ is over. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, rulers, whatever it might be, Christ is over all and he is above all. So therefore, we do not fear. We do not fear. And instead, we find hope in Christ, who is our comforter. He is our comforter. And what what does the scripture say of Jesus Christ as our comforter? 
Well, John 16, 33, it says, I have said these things to you, Jesus speaking to the disciples before, uh, before his trial and execution. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, because in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I don't think Jesus was only speaking to the disciples of their current circumstance. Although that's indeed what the disciples heard. My current situation, Jesus, is very troubling. So these are words of comfort. But we can also expand out from our own small circle and our own little bubble. And Christ is still absolutely in control. Matthew 28, 20 says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And again, while the occasion was Jesus' ascension into heaven, And the disciples surely being afraid of this master of ours who is now leaving us. He says, I am with you always. Do not be afraid. And then finally, what does it say in Matthew 11? Jesus Christ says, comforter. It says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am what? I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, it is light. He is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation. What better place to run than to a Savior who says, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly. Find rest. My burden, it is light. And to that we say, Yes, Lord, we will go. We will follow. We don't fully know. We don't know what's on the horizon. But we know that you are in control of that horizon, so we will run to you. God is our, is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation. Also, that God is our protector. God is our protector, though there be chaos in this city. You see this in verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, remember the occasion of this psalm. Very likely that the city of Jerusalem itself was under siege. A walled encampment on top of a mountain under siege. Many thought, especially the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was impenetrable. But we know from history that that is not the case. If this is the occasion from which the psalmists are writing, how can they have such hope? It's not in the walls of the city. It's not even in the temple in the center of that city. It is the God who dwells in it. He is their protector. Now notice here in verse 4, it says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, if the city of Jerusalem is in fact what the psalmists are writing about and a siege that is happening upon the city, It's very odd that they would write this, that the river makes glad the city. You know why? I don't know about you, but when was the last time you saw a city running through a mountaintop city? Or a river, sorry, a river running through a mountaintop city. It's very rare. Jerusalem was fed by a a spring, and this spring was a life force to the city. And in fact, if there was any enemy upon Jerusalem— what would they do? They would cut off sources to water and sources to food. 
And so here the psalmists are not looking just to the physical city of Jerusalem, but he's pointing forward to something greater to come. A new Jerusalem, if you will, a new city of God. This river will come and make glad its inhabitants. So you can imagine the inhabitants are hearing this and they're recalling maybe a historical fact of the city. I remember when Jerusalem was laid asunder. But you know what? We still have a hope for a greater city to come. And guess who is the king and the ruler of that city? But God himself, who is our protector. Revelation 22 talks about this city that runs through, or this river. This is the second time I did it. A river that runs through the city, that God is in the midst of the city. Again, as I mentioned in the first section, it's a God that does not need to be conjured up. You don't have to go and, and say a secret formula or a phrase for God to come. He's already there. He is in the midst of her. And when he speaks, he commands attention. When he works, he commands attention. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. The Lord of hosts is with us. Atlanta, I think, is a unique city. I mean, I haven't been to a lot of places across this country or even this world. Um, but the way I was found it intriguing, the way that 75 or, uh, you know, the connector runs through the heart of the city. There are other cities across this world and even in the United States where there are literal rivers running through the cities. And I love these cities. Washington, D.C. is one of those places where the Potomac runs through the city. Uh, we had another opportunity with my family to go to London and to Paris. And what are two unique features about each of those cities? But rivers that run through them, right? Uh, there is another city. I think we have a picture of this and see if how many of you guys can recognize this city from the diagram. Um, for those of you in the back, that might be very uh, impossible to read. But for those of you in the front, you will soon realize that is not a real city physically here on earth. That is Gotham City. And Gotham City is broken up um, to multiple parts of the city that is broken up by rivers. And it, to me, this is fascinating to think about Batman. Yes, I know. I brought Batman into the sermon. How Batman is aiming to protect Gotham. And though he try and though he fight. And yes, though he may have some success here and there with comical villains he himself being a comical hero, he is unable to save the city of Gotham, though he tries. We don't look to a Batman, though. We don't look to some other Avenger or superhero. We look to Christ. Now, here's a, an interesting aside. Why is it that superheroes and the idea of superheroes appeal to so many of us? Because I think we all recognize and realize, yes, our current situation may demand a rescuer, a hero, someone to avenge me, someone to take revenge out on others on my behalf, someone to save me. But again, I would say that there is no greater savior, no greater rescuer than Christ himself, who is able to utter his voice and then the earth melts. And so we hear this refrain in verse 7. You'll see it again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Is the psalmist reminding the people so that the people will remind themselves God is in control. So let's run to him. He is our protector. No one else. He is our protector. If we are waiting for someone to save us, we must wait upon God. So how does Psalm 46 then sing of Christ as our protector? I do believe, yes, Christ is our warrior that goes out in front of us. He slays Satan and he slays sin and death. Yes, absolutely. Even Exodus 14 talks about the Lord being a man of war who fights for his people and who defends them. And Christ will fight our battles. And he does promise to never leave or forsake us, as we read earlier, heard earlier from Matthew 28 and Matthew 11. God certainly wages war against the evil forces at work in this world. I believe God is even at war with this virus. I believe it. But what does Jesus say of himself? John 10, 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone comes to me, he will be saved. I will go in and out and find pasture, or will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that, I, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Maybe you can think of your enemy, be it a person, be it an idea, be it... Um, Something else, maybe even a virus. How has that thing come to steal, to kill, and to destroy? And what have you done in the midst of that? Have you said, all right, well, it's time for me to buckle up my shoes. You don't really buckle it. Tie up my shoes, you know, and you get your weapons ready, right? I'm going to go fight this battle. I think, yes, there is an, an, an opportunity for us to be sure and to, and, and to have a resolve and a willingness, yes, to fight. But ultimately, whose battle is this but the Lord's? Jesus says, I am the door. Another way of saying that he is the gate. Another way of saying that is that he is the protector. I will protect who comes in and out. Trust me. And then verse 11 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Who in their right mind would lay down their lives, their life, for a measly sheep? Jesus Christ would. And he calls himself good shepherd. He is our protector. He is our protector. Though there be chaos out in the city, are we running to this Christ? So what's our application here? Well, consider what it is that you are hoping for. Who is this Messiah that you are looking for? Who is this Savior that you're hoping for? And what is the victory that you want to accomplish? What's this victory? How do you celebrate even salvation? Well, I've won. Now rub it in my enemy's face. Is that what you're saying? Are we making more of the spoils than the Savior are we making more of our victory than who the Savior Christ is? And if you are, I would encourage you and implore you, run to Jesus, who is our protector, who is our comforter. Celebrate him. Celebrate him and make him great. And this leads us to our third point, very similar to our second one. Not only is God our comforter, not only is he our protector, but I see here in verses 8 through 11, that God is our champion. 
He's our champion, though there be chaos in the nations. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord. I'm just going to stop right there for a second. Come behold, that is prophetic language. Again, we already know that the, the psalmists here are not just speaking about the current occasion, that is the city of Jerusalem being attacked, but he's also speaking to a future reality. Come behold this prophetic language that the Old Testament prophets would use. And even, uh, even uh, John the Baptist would say this about Jesus. Come and behold. Come and see who is going to rescue us. It's this champion. He is the Lord. And what is he going to do? He has brought desolation on the earth. He will make wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then he says this in verse 10. Be still. How many of us have turned to Psalm 4010a in times of trouble? I would say all of us. And if you haven't, you probably will after this sermon. I hope you would. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. But I don't think this is just a gentle whisper that God is saying to the people in Israel. It absolutely can be that. But based on where this sits in this text, I believe this is a commanding shout from God to the enemy. The enemy who is laying siege to the city. And what does Christ say? What does God say, rather? He says, be still. Know that I am God. You are not. Because you have chariots, I'm not afraid. Because you have weapons and bows and arrows, I am not afraid. You be still. I am in control. I am God. I am the ruler. I am protector. I am champion. We don't have time here to go over this, but this idea of a champion in Old Testament history is, is, is incredibly rich and deep. And we see it in particular in the story of David and Goliath how Goliath represented the Philistines and how David comes out and represents the people of God. The champion there for each of the two sides are head-to-head clashing. And David is the one who is victorious. And oftentimes we write ourselves into that story and say, if I could only just be more like David. Rather, what we should be saying is, praise God that Christ is the David who defeats the Goliath. He is our champion. Because of his victory, I too have victory. So the application of that story is that we follow Christ who is our champion. He has won it for us. And I believe that's the application here for us as well. Come and see this champion. The war see the war ceases. We know that the champion is acting. And that's the context of Psalm 10a or 4610a. It's not a quiet whisper, be still to the people of the city. It is a shout to the enemies outside the city walls. The purpose here is not to give victory only to one nation. Though you may try and read that into the text for the nation of Israel. But really, when you look at the whole of scripture, why does he save Jerusalem? Why does he save Israel? So that the other nations can also come and be saved. So when it says here in Psalm 46, 10, 
Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's not just a rebuke to the nations that are attacking, but also an offering of hope. He's saying, come, stop fighting and start believing. Isaiah 2, the long passage here, but we'll put it up onto the screens. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. For what purpose? And all nations shall flow to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah the prophet is imploring the Israelites, let us do this, follow the Lord, so that the nations can also come and follow the Lord. That is the mission. That is the calling. And that is why God utters these deafening words of be still. There is a a place in the New Testament that I think Hopefully, I don't know, maybe, but I think the disciples were picking up on this fact. And that's when Jesus and his disciples are in the boat and they're crossing the sea. They, did, they probably were not thinking of a history lesson in Israel, but that's what they got. It says here in Mark 4, 37 through 41, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But Jesus was asleep in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. And what does he say? Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Peace, be still. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes the created things because he himself is the creator. And nothing, nothing creates fear in him. Even in the midst of chaos, what is Jesus doing? He is asleep on the stern. And he gets up and he tells the wind and the waves stop so when we see here in psalm 46 10 be still and know that i am lord, i am the lord that i am god that is both a reminder to us but also a reminder to an unbelieving world who is in control peace be still and then again we see the refrain in verse 11 the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our fortress. What does Psalm 46 then sing about Jesus as our champion? Well, yes, we do see one who can stop the wind and the waves in its tracks. 
But what does Jesus also say about himself? What do the prophets say about who he is? What does Paul say about who Jesus is? Christ as champion and victorious? Absolutely. But the context may be a little bit different than what we may assume. Isaiah 53 says this. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is the Christ, the iniquity of us all. Doesn't make sense. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? Power. Power. It is the power of God. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, who is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. And the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. This is our champion. God himself is our treasure. He is the one that we are to protect. He is the one, though, who protects us. He is the one who, though he was on the cross, incredibly discomforted, who says, I comfort you. And though we may see temporarily on the cross and in the grave, a champion, maybe not, but truly he is a champion because he is victorious over sin and death itself. Our hope of victory in this life is not based on simply the material or circumstantial spoils in our life. But what are the victories that, or what are the battles that we are fighting and what are the victories that we are wanting? What is this blessing that we so desire? Well, the challenging words are here in Luke 15. And Jesus says it himself to his disciples. Your blessing is not that the enemy runs and flees when you utter my name. Look at it in verse 9. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He could have stopped that right there, and we'd have been like, all right, that's great. Sounds awesome. I have hope for tomorrow. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is our hope. This is why Christ comforts, defends, and champions us, that we would be together with him in heaven. But while we are here, we will still seek the shalom of the city, of our families, of our nation, this globe. And we proclaim the good news of the gospel wherever we go, by word and by deed. May this alone, that our names are written in the book of life, be enough. May this give us strength when we encounter suffering and when our timelines are pushed back 
two weeks, three weeks, three months, a year. May this give us strength. May this, that our names are written in the book of life, be what prompt us to say, God, send me where you will, and that I, would, that I may be faithful to follow you, because you are with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you be the one who indeed goes ahead of us and before us and is behind us? Lord, some of us are experiencing things even now in life where we feel as though the outer wall that is meant to protect us is, has crumbled or is very close to crumbling. And we may even look at you and say, God, how can you permit this? How can you allow this? Are you not, God, are you not in control? And God, yet you allow us to say such things to you. So Lord, by your spirit, would you remind us, even in the midst of our tragedy and suffering, that God, you are with us, that you comfort us, that you still say, come to me. For where else can we go? What other fortress to which can we run beside you that will protect us truly? There is none, only you. So Jesus, we run to you. Would we commune with you? Would we follow you? And when we fail, we look to our own devices. God, would your spirit remind us again? Would you utter to us, be still. Know that I am God and know that I will be exalted among the nations. God, would you captivate our hearts again and again and again? Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We thank you that you say, come to you, that we can find rest in you. Jesus, it is in your matchless name that we pray. Amen. Every week here at City Church Eastside, we have the opportunity to confess. And normally it's a confession of sin, but if you've been here for any length of time, you know that on the very first Sunday of the month, we switch it up and we do a confession of faith. And in light of this text, wow. I mean, what a great opportunity. Just like, I mean, if you think about it,